0: Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we get to
1: talk about part one of two regarding the history of hate, and we'll look at it initially through the lens of the KKK. So today we get to talk about the history of hate. I think there's so much to talk about that this may end up being split into
0: two episodes. But do you remember when the KKK used to hate, oh, Catholics, right? That's crazy, right? I think we associate the KKK with, you know, race violence and hoods and burning crosses. But to think about them hating different religions as well, or especially Catholics, is something I don't think about. Right.
1: So the 2017 report on the history of the KKK, America's first terrorist organization, was prepared by the Klan Watch Project of the Southern Poverty Law Center. So we used a lot of that as the backbone for this. But just to put it into context, I think in one of our first episodes, we talked about how many hate groups there are in the U.S. now. And there's been a 50% increase in hate groups in 2018. Like, So there's over a 1000 hate groups being tracked right now by the Southern Poverty Law Center. So this is not like a thing of the past. In fact, it's really increased, which is why I thought it'd be interesting to talk about this, right? Like, let's talk about one of America's original hate groups, the pioneers, we should be so proud of them. But I think it's important to understand how that happened to understand what might be happening now, too.
0: And I think as we're recording this, which you'll hear this episode will come out later, but as we're recording this, we're sort of still reeling from some several significant hate-related incidences that have happened, hate-related shootings that have happened in the United States close to home. So I think this really, for us, Is very personal this week as we look into the history behind the KKK. Totally. And do you want to tell your mom that you do have a cold right now? So that's. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Tell her not to worry or call you. I have a cold. (laughs) This has been recorded in the past. So no need to call or email me. That's why I sound funny. But okay. Disclaimer for my mom done. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I'm glad we're still talking today, though, because I
1: really want to talk about this. So there were three periods of significant strength for the KKK in American history. One was in the late 19th century, so like the 1860s and 1870s. And then there was another period of power in the 1920s, and then again in the 1950s, early 60s. So I think in this episode, we really want to talk about where it started, how it started, and how it came to be. And that's what we'll be focusing on. But there's some scary stuff that you guys want to know.
0: Yeah, I think the first period, and this is when this coincides right, not surprisingly, with the end of the Civil War. So the Civil War ended in the spring of 1865 with Robert E. Lee surrendering the last major Confederate army to Ulysses Grant on April 9th, 1865. So just to put this in context. And at that point, That was considered by white Southerners to be a loss of life, property and um, honor in their eyes. So at this time, and we'll go more into detail on this in just a second, but it was really a great time for the KKK to come into being. Basically, in the South, if you think about the post-war South, they were... The Southerners were dealing with ruined cities, plantations, and farms. Everything they had known was sort of up in the air. They were impoverished, they were hungry, there was an occupation army in their midst. And Reconstruction was right around the corner with those governments threatening to take away the traditional white ruling authority.
1: Right, I mean, these are called radical governments, Reconstruction governments, and we'll get into a little bit more about which American political party this was actually, that was doing it, but one historian, summed up these governments by saying this. He said, granting all their mistakes, the radical governments were by far the most democratic the South had ever known. They were the only governments in Southern history to extend to, and this is a quote, so forgive the wording, but to extend to Negroes, complete civil and political equality and to try to protect them in the enjoyment of the rights they were granted. And so when these governments were replaced by an all-white conservative government, as we'll talk about, most of these rights were stripped back away from the Blacks, and in some cases, for poor whites as well?
0: So the actual start of the KKK was when six young ex-Confederate soldiers met in a law office in December of 1865. So that's the same for- year, later that year, that the yes.
1: Civil War ended, and then
0: late that's that year. Right. Okay. right. So it, it's only been about eight months since the Civil War ended. So these six guys met to form a secret club that they called the Ku Klux Klan, which comes from Kuklos, which is Greek for circle, and they just threw in clan because they liked the alliteration. I mean, who wouldn't, right? <laughs> so from that beginning, in this little town of Pulaski, Tennessee, their club began to grow. And their early actions were really a lot more frivolous. They put on sheets. They would go up to homes of black people and would claim to be ghosts of Confederate soldiers. So their whole intent was to scare them, kind of Halloween style.
1: So I'm laughing a little bit because you just said that they were six ex-Confederates. Like there were six people who got together and were like, hey, let's figure out how to do something, And so like my book club with six people, maybe could come up with plans like this to like wreck an entire segment of our population. I mean, sure. it's, if you had the option to start something with your nearest and dearest that would help improve the quality of your life, right? Because in theory, these were people were meeting to do something about how they felt about the world around them. So if you were going to do something about the world around you, what would you do? Right? I mean, I might talk about books, start a cooking club, wine club, Way to drive kids to and from school activity so I don't have to waste my time doing it. I mean I don't know. I don't maybe I it's because it's not a systemic fear. I'm not really sure. I can't put myself in that climate because I just don't understand what that felt like to be back then. But imagine being I almost said something really cheesy. Would you have started a fright club? Oh my God, how
0: are we friends? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, if you live in fear. But is this where we are at now, right? Because we just talked at the beginning of the episode about this rise in hate groups. There's a lot of fear right now. And I mean, the KKK, which started with six people meeting, has been a legacy for 150 years now. What are we doing right now that might wind up creating that same kind of legacy? How do we find out about those six people meeting somewhere? How do we stop it? And what are we doing as people when we meet with our small groups too, right?
0: I think that's such an important question, too, because when you're living in fear and you're looking at systems that you have known that has sort of protected you for years, and your maybe your whole natural life being dismantled around you. And the way that you deal with that is really telling. And I think that this and understanding really how the KKK came into being the very first time around, is really important to understand, because it looks at the choices that people make and what they do with that fear.
1: Right? Well, because it is also kind of like, a club or a sense of purpose. I know, I mean, in the positive psychology work I do, I talk so much about this sense of having a life of meaning, how frightening that people can choose life of meaning through hate, right? Yes. Yes. And completely. anger, and that's your purpose in life. I mean, that's kind of the opposite of thriving. And yet it fills that same need for having a reason for being and a sense of belonging with your friends and that sort of stuff. So I don't know, it's easy to go there, I think. And it's scary.
0: Yeah, well and I um what I didn't know was why the KKK had started as originally to scare, not necessarily to harm but to scare. And some of the research that you looked into was really interesting I thought on this front and the psychology behind it. Right?
1: like the so the psychology of ghosts i mean as you said they started with this idea of scaring people and these things ghosts were known as a specter and it's based on the ancient idea that a person's spirit exists separately from his or her body and may continue to exist after that person dies and so if you think about i mean the slavery had just ended but there's a story during slave days owners would have slave quarters in log cabins And when you build log cabins, sometimes they have holes in them, right? So an owner might say, take his white horse, tie tin cans around the back and frighten the slaves by saying that if you're going to leave your quarters after a certain hour, you're going to be haunted by the monsters of ghosts. And so it's that similar sense of fear, right? I mean, it's pretty significant that the early clan made these efforts to frighten them through supernatural means.
0: I think that the whole... That white people and the early Klan really thought that not only were black people gullible and would believe anything, but that they were so superstitious that they had this fantastical belief about the supernatural woven throughout their lives. I mean, with obvious flaws, right? A, they underestimated the intelligence of black people. And B, they overestimated how superstitious black people were. Because in reality, like black people were frightened, just not of ghosts. They were frightened of living armed dudes who were really capable of killing them, basically making them ghosts before they were ready to go. Exactly. So
1: the scaring as a tactic to control the black population that did not work effectively. So it escalates, right? But at the beginning, so let's go back to what we were talking about before about who they were riding against, and the politics, the reason that these six Confederates and others eventually felt that they needed to do something. It turns out that the main target for the KKK to overthrow in the South was the Republican Party. Because wasn't Abraham Lincoln a Republican, actually? Yeah. The party only really emerged in 1854 to combat the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So there was this thing called the Missouri Compromise, and basically the Kansas-Nebraska Act dissolved the terms of them. So that allowed slave or free status to be decided in the territories based on what the people wanted. And so it opened the Kansas Territory, the Nebraska Territory, that could all of a sudden be open to slavery and be, you know, they might be admitted as slave states. And so Northerners who were anti-slavery felt that this was a pretty aggressive move by the slave-owning South to do this. And so the new Republican Party, which envisioned modernizing the United States, talking about banking and railroads and factories that sort of stuff and giving free western land to farmers as opposed to letting slave owners buy it up
0: was what the kkk was fighting against i think that's such a contrast between what we know the republican party to be which is so telling about the state of american politics
1: Mm -hmm. so at the beginning the republican party was primarily african-american and white northern protestants a lot of businessmen professionals factory workers farmers it was really really pro-business And then when Ulysses Grant in 1868 got control and became president, they basically wanted to expand the party and attempt to build a really solid Republican base in the South. And this is where some of these terms, it was really interesting doing the research for this because that is when they wanted to expand using the votes of freedmen, right? And then this term, these are both really pejorative terms now, but I'll tell you what they mean, the scalawags who were Southerners, people who had originally lived in the South, white people, who supported Reconstruction and the Republican Party. And then they wanted to get the support of carpetbaggers, who were basically people from the northern United States who came to the South after the Civil War. And they were named that way because of the luggage was made out of sort of cheap carpet. So these are called <laughs> carpetbaggers, people who sort of fly in from a different area and want to impose or affect the living conditions of the new place that they moved to. And so that was how they were attempting to really influence Southern politics. And the KKK didn't like that.
0: Yeah, I think that this is when the KKK really turned violent, because even though there was this movement by the Republican Party, the white Southern voices in the South against the Klan were still in the minority and one of the Klan's greatest strengths during this period was the large number of editors, ministers, former Confederate officers and political leaders who literally hid behind sheets and helped to guide their actions. At that time, the Klan's reputed leader was a general, General Nathan Bedford Forrest, a legendary Confederate cavalry officer who settled in Tennessee and apparently was an early adopter of the Klan. So the ugly side Of the KKK, which includes, I think, how we see the Klan today the mutilations and floggings, lynchings, and shootings began to spread across the South in 1868. And although the Klan had its sort of first real organizational convention, you know, Comic-Con style in 1867 (laughs) in Nashville, where they did express some words of caution about, you know, how this expansion and what the role of the Klan was. People largely forgot that because they, you know, started killing. So thousands died, really, when the KKK attacked and they had to fight back.
1: Right. Uh, Comic-Con style, nice. (laughs) So I think eventually with this fighting, basically factions started developing right like kind of like there are factions in each of the parties now back then there were factions within the republican party they had the black and tan republican party and they eventually became marginalized by literally it's called the lily white faction so take a guess like what <laughs> the skin tones of people who largely populated those groups were like and then ultimately i mean then we had reconstruction right and the systems that happened
0: Yeah, and Reconstruction, um, which was the period of time immediately following the Civil War in the South, in which all 11 of the former Confederate, all the states that seceded from the Union, had been rebuilt on these really lenient terms, which basically allowed many of the ex-Confederate leaders to get right back in power. So the Southern state legislatures began enacting laws that made it clear that the people who ran them really did not want to give up any of their pre-war control to over poor whites and especially over blacks. So basically, even though slavery was outlawed, it was kind of still in practice. So the laws that were enacted became known as the Black Codes. In some cases, it became a virtual re-enslavement of blacks. Like one example is you basically had to have a signed, if you were black, a signed one-year labor contract with a white person. Any violation of that contract would result in a fine you could, quote, work off your fine by giving up your black children to, quote, be trained. So, Jeez. right. Doesn't this sound a lot like slavery? Yeah. Except you've got mm, kind of a nominal legal document here. And at the same time, the Klan, still being pretty powerful, kept the black voters away from the polls. So because they also killed black office holders, hung them, beat them, that tends to sort of, you know, impact black voters. So, white Southern Democrats won elections easily. And remember, the Democrats are not how they look currently. They are the opposite of the Republican Party, which was very different in this time period. And those Democrats then passed laws taking away all the rights the blacks had won during Reconstruction.
1: That's crazy. I mean, so then after the power shifted, sort of were talking like, oh yeah, so what changed was like in early 1870s and then by the mid-1870s, they really didn't need the Klan as much because they had retaken so much control in the way that you just described. And the thing is, the Klan likes to say that they were the ones who made it happen. They were the ones who took back the South and they called this period redemption. The reality is there were many historical reasons for the change into this all-white government, Which includes the Civil Rights Act of 1871, this Enforcement Act, which took away, which was like a federal law, and it took away habeas corpus for KKK members. But I looked up what habeas corpus is, and I'm like, I'm just going to talk
0: to my lawyer friend right over there. What is habeas corpus? Can you go lawyer on us, please? Yes, I can. So habeas corpus is Latin for right of the body. Like the very simple explanation of habeas corpus is that basically you can't just be arrested and held indefinitely. You have to be brought in front of a court and have to have an argument as to why you're being arrested. So they can't just secret you away. You have to have your day in court. Got it. So the president basically said...
1: That's going to go away. I have the power to just take that. What is it like? Is it a protection, I guess, away? And so there was federal intervention. I mean, it's crazy. I think that law is actually still valid right now, right? Like, is it the president that can do that? I'm not actually sure. But basically, after that act, the Civil Rights Act of 1871 passed, the president had the power for the first time to suppress state disorders on his own initiative and to suspend the right of habeas corpus so he could just sort of arrest people and hold them,
0: right? Pretty scary considering the levels of power that like our current president, you know, is looking for. I think that you think about the ability to have no checks and balances there. That's a lot. Right. But at that time, under this... Law, under this
1: act, federal troops were rather were used instead of the state militias to enforce the nationwide laws, and the Klansmen were prosecuted in federal court, where juries were often predominantly black. And so that really played a huge part in the end of this first sort of dominance of the KKK on the political scene,
0: right? Yeah, I can imagine that if you know that it's likely you're going to be arrested and when you're prosecuted, you're going to be prosecuted where the people who are going to decide your fate are the exact people that you've been trying to kill, I think that might make a difference.
1: Totally. I mean, I think so for takeaways from this first part of this first sort of period and the start of the KKK, I think it's important to know that hate organizations don't always hate what they're known for, right? Right. I thought the KKK hated Black people. And yes, to a large degree, that is true. But they adapted the targets of their hate depending on what was convenient for them. They hated the Republican Party. You know, they hated poor whites. They really can shift. And so I am left wondering, well, how pure are their intentions? Well, I mean, because I was thinking, and we'll talk about this a little bit later too, if the KKK used to be against the Republican Party, but yet David Duke, who was a former KKK I don't know what the title is, like head. Grand Wizard. Yes, right. And he ran for the Republican Party. So I think we'll talk about David Duke and Catholics and all that sort of stuff soon. But I just find it interesting. And sometimes hate is not hating for the person or the group itself. But there's something else going on. It's not like truly that black people were hated. It's that they didn't like that they didn't have power. So they would hate whoever it was so they could get in power. It seems like more to me.
0: Well, and I think it's about destruction of systems, right, of privilege. So if you have someone who has been privileged and is having that privilege threatened, then you automatically want to rebel against whatever is threatening you on that front. So whether it's Catholics, whether it's blacks, whether it's gays, it can be really anything that's very movable as to your target, right? But the issue is you want the privilege that you feel like you should have right. and that you have had based on systemic issues and institutions. Right. And it's scary that
1: small groups can make such a huge difference, right? Like six people started the Klan. And so unchecked anger can really and this sense of loss of privilege can really manifest in harmful ways. And I feel like it sounds so silly But it's so important to like, really just reach out and talk with the people, you know, make sure people are connected and are not, or that are thinking about this in a more holistic way and not sort of going down that dark spiral, because that seems to happen over and over and over again, not necessarily just for these kind of hate organizations, but even in just anger and threatening schools, or, you know, there's just, the human psyche can be incredibly powerful, but it's so important to feel like we belong, like we're connected, that people see us. And I think that requires people reaching out, people being connected.
0: I totally agree. And I think it has to be more than a lot of the virtual connections that we have these days, because I think the KKK, you know, in 1865, there was no internet or chat rooms or, you know, any way to sort of mobilize besides six dudes in a room. And now we have a very different scenario and a, a much more impersonal scenario. Um, so I completely agree that it's the connection, that it's the talking to making people feel heard and looking for other outlets besides hate, which is such a pervasive and negative and destructive one. Totally. All right, then. So takeaway
1: from this episode, don't use your book club or any small groups to spread hate. Okay. Okay, folks, let's spend time
0: learning and <laughs> listening and growing Please instead. Don't. Okay, let's
1: live in some love
0: here for a while. Yes. And think about the actions, even small, even, you know, with your five best friends, how those might impact much larger groups of people. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't? Sign up on our website, DearWhiteWomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at
1: Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWWPodcast. Find us there.